Good morning and happy Father's Day. If you're a dad, we've got some dad's root beer out there for you. Get it? Dad, dads. <laughs> we had to look all over for that, so be sure to thank Rebecca. I think she raided every Cracker Barrel between here and Huntsville to get that. Apparently that's the only place you can get dad's root beer anymore. Um, but listen, happy Father's Day. Um, if you are a dad, and, and listen, we understand like Mother's Day, Father's Day is not the best day for everybody. Some of us have had tough father experiences like we might have had tough mom experiences. I, for me personally, it's a little bit of a bittersweet day. I am a dad, so I like to celebrate it. I lost my dad, so it's kind of a, like I said, it's bittersweet. If your experience with your dad was less than awesome, um, or maybe you didn't even grow up with a father figure in your life, I just want to encourage you that God is not just a good father and gives good fatherly care of us, but if you're in Christ, he loves you, he's proud of you, which is really what we always want from our dads anyway, right? It's just for them to be proud of us, for them to love us and smile upon us. And I just want you to know that this morning for you, that is his posture. So happy Father's Day. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 3 today. So you can turn that. Uh, if you just go in your Bible, turn left. Or you can just put Exodus 3 in your search engine. Um, we have been walking through this book of Exodus. We started last week. We went through uh, chapters 1 and 2. And if you weren't here, Exodus is really a story about God's redemption of his people from a place of slavery into a place of abundance. He drew them out of Egypt and he drew them close to himself. And the main idea is he alone is God and he loves his people. Last week, we focused on the aspect of God, his heart, the heart of God, how God saw the cry of his people, how he heard, he knew, he remembered, he felt their pain. And we saw how, as a template, our heart is going to be the same as missionaries, right? As missionaries, we too will see and feel and understand the plight of those who are oppressed and enslaved around us. We love what God loves, we hate what God hates, we feel what God feels. So if last week we looked at the heart of a missionary, today we're going to get to look at the confidence of one, the confidence or the courage of a missionary. And, and even if, as I say the word missionary, some of you are thinking, I, I'm in the wrong meeting, I thought this was a church. We believe as a church that if you are in fact in Christ, you are also a missionary, that there is no such thing as a Christian who is not also sent and we're going to talk about that just a little bit. But I know that this is tough, having the confidence to be a missionary because none of us in the room feel like we're perfect for the job. Jesus' people are wildly insecure when it comes to extending the gospel, carrying the gospel, proclaiming the good news. We're all insecure about that. I mean, honestly, if Will Smith from Aladdin showed up and gave us five wishes... Right? We all agree that was his finest role so far today, right, in Aladdin. But if he showed up and he said, I will let you change five things about yourself, you would require 0.6 seconds to think about what those five would be. You want to know why? Because you've been working on that list your whole life, right? The things that you would change about yourself. It's the things that you've been saying since you were a little kid. Of, Man, I hate this about myself. I would change this if I could, right? Don't ask me to rattle off my favorite ethnic food restaurants quickly or my favorite westerns quickly. I'd have to think about it. But when it came to changing what I would change about myself, that's easy. Easy. Number one, anxiety. I could be an anxious guy. 
I changed that. My eyesight, I've got real crappy eyesight. I mean, my contacts are like this thick, right? And if one of them fell out, I'd be bumping into stuff all day. Bad eyesight. Hair. I don't have any hair, right? This isn't, this isn't a, a fashion statement. This is necessity. It was falling out. That's what church planning did to me. I had to shave it all. So I'd like some better hair. My sleep has always been garbage. There's tons of things. My problem is not finding five things I'd like to change about myself. It's stopping at five, right? It's stopping at five. And that's without even adding things that I've done that I wished I could undo. That's a, that's a much bigger list now. Or things that were done to me. Because not only am I imperfect, I've lived imperfectly around imperfect people in a very imperfect world. If that's true for me, and that's true for you, what do you think Moses' list was? He had some baggage. That's what we saw last week. This guy had a story. He was pushed into a basket as a child, pushed into the river, and then he was adopted by Egyptian royalty. That must have been confusing. Murdered a guy got caught, ran from the law, ended up 500 miles away, got in a fist fight, married a woman, right, learned how to work, got himself a farmer's tan. Now he's got a very, very different life. We know that he has baggage, and we know that when God approaches him about his mission and how Moses will be sent on his mission, we're going to see some insecurity in Moses. And we know that this is happening because he's going to try to talk God out of his very own mission. He's going to argue with God a little bit. And we get this. Because we too, we don't feel like we're right for God's mission. We also argue with God. We lack courage. We lack confidence that God can actually accomplish something very big through very imperfect and unimpressive people like us. I mean, just when you hear me talk about mission, just when I say the word, or extending the gospel, or carrying the gospel. Do you feel like you're qualified for that? Not really, right? Not really. I mean, when I discuss living on mission, which is a phrase we use a lot here, to do life on life with each other while on mission, these are just common phrases we use. Some of us, we probably feel a little bit of a shame, maybe a regret that we're not good at it, wishing that that was something that we were really good at, telling ourselves, I need to get a book on that or I need to take a class on that or something because I am so bad at this thing called life on mission. And here is the good news for all of us. We are not qualified for it. We are wildly inadequate for this thing called mission. And yet God's mission to redeem creation is perfect for imperfect people. It's perfect for us. It's perfect for those of us who live imperfectly because we have an impressive God. And because you and I have an impressive God, we, not, we need not be impressive. We don't have to be. We just enter into his mission. In fact, it will be our lack of impressiveness that draws even more attention to the fact that God is who he is in his glory and his might and his power. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. Stay where you're at in Exodus. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This valuable treasure, which in this context is the knowledge of God, this knowing God, we carry that in just, just brown paper bags. Nothing impressive. It's not impressive, but it brings more spotlight to the fact that God is who he says he is. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Exodus 3. We're going to see what this passage tells us about this treasure that we carry in 
are jars of clay and how God will show himself mighty and powerful through mission, through imperfect people. We're going to just do six verses at first. This is the word of the Lord. It says to us, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which, you st- on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Okay. This fire is misbehaving because it's not burning right and it's talking, right? So it's a, it's a fire that doesn't do what, fi- what fires do and it's conversing with Moses so he does what any of us would do and say, I think I will check that out. I think I will step aside and investigate this fire. Now here's what's interesting. God had options, right? He's God. He could have appeared in any way he felt like. It could have, he could have been a goat, a merman, he could have been an angel, anything you can dream, he could have shown up, but he chose fire, a fire that wasn't consuming anything. Why do you think he did that? He did that so you and I would not miss pieces of his character that are shown by the very fact that he is fire in this moment. In fact, in this moment, this fire needs no fuel. It's not consuming the bush, which is conveying this unbounded, unrestricted independence from creation itself. He doesn't need creation to hold him upright. He holds creation upright. He doesn't even need creation to burn brightly before us because he's the one that defines creation. Later on, he would be a pillar of fire that would lead all of these people through a strange land. And that too is supposed to show us a little bit of who God is, that he gives guidance that is consistent, that his guidance is something we can depend upon, that his guidance is trustworthy. Later on at Mount Sinai, where the law is given, he would show up as fire on the mountain, again to show us that his guidance is holy, that it is defined by him and him alone, that it is set apart. There would be fire in the tabernacle when they're going to finish building that. We'll hit that in a couple months. When they're done with the tabernacle, we would see through fire that his presence is heavy, that it has weight, that it has grandeur to it. Later on in the New Testament, we'd see in the day of Pentecost, we would see something like a fire come and overwhelm the church. We would see another characteristic of God, that his presence comes to empower, that his presence comes to set free, that his presence comes to launch. Let's see, fire makes sense for God. This bush, it makes total sense, right? Because you and I, we're fascinated by fire. We're drawn to fire. We look for ways to get around it, campfires, any kind of fire. But We have to respect it at the same time. We don't grab it with our hands. There is a a space between us and the fire, which is why he says, remove the sandals from your feet. This is not common ground. The space is not space you can just cross. There's a gap here. Move no further. 
which is a reminder, probably a different sermon, but a little bit of a reminder that this is a question mankind has been asking ever since. How can I come close to a God like this? How can I come close to a God like this? Every religion in the world has tried to answer that question, right? Right? Because there's an obvious gap, if not a gulf, between unimpressive man and very impressive God. And God was even so thoughtful in this gap between us and him that he would give us the sacrificial system. That's what that is. We'll hit that in a few weeks. What the sacrificial system is, is a way for us to come close to such a huge and magnificent God. It would be through the blood of animals that would cover our sin. And that all is just going to point to something much later in Christ who would be the last sacrifice and the last priest whose blood would cover all of our sin. Jesus is ultimately the stopgap that we can come close to God. Now, without Jesus, mankind has the same problem. And listen, that might be some of you, and if you're watching, it might be some of you watching, where you're used to something closing the gap. Maybe it's your behavior. I behave in such a way. I go to church. I don't sin. I don't break what we, what we see as our own Ten Commandments. I obey. I fit within my system, right? I'm a good person. I give to the Red Cross. I go to GoFundMe and I help people out that look like they, the things that you do becomes the thing that closes the gap between you and God. Here in East Tennessee, I come across all the time affiliation being the stopgap. My parents grew me up in church. I grew up in church because of my parents. So because you came from a Christian family, you see yourself as someone that can come near to God, right? But what we're going to see is that it's only Christ that is a stopgap. In fact, I think if that is you, if I just described you, you're probably suspecting in some way that you're wrong, that you're not close to God, right? You're what we call Christ-haunted, where you have a suspicion that what you have counted on in the past to pull you close to God hasn't really worked. We're going to get back to that in just a minute. But to get back to the passage, God has his undivided attention. We can say that at the minimum, right? But then he introduces himself in the same passage, I am the God of your forefathers. This is important. This type of introduction. He's not being long-winded for the sake of it. You see, God had a long-standing covenant with his forefathers that's passed right on down to Moses. And it's important for Moses to know this. A covenant is like a promise or a contract between people before God or between us and God. A covenant can be two-sided and conditions built into it. If I do this, you do that. Sometimes covenants can be one-sided, where regardless of one party's actions, the other one stands true, right? The Old Testament, we would see two parties. There will be blessing and curses if you follow or don't follow these laws, as we will see. The New Testament is a covenant of grace. That's one-sided, that even though we misperform and we are bad at our behavior and we do not follow the laws of God, he is good to us if we are in Christ. He is good to us. Covenant, that's what he is announcing here. But here's the thing about a covenant. It's only as good and strong as the party who makes it, right? You've seen the couple that gets married. They're young. They don't really have a high esteem of marriage. It's just a thing you do. It's like adult dating, right? So how strong is that covenant? It's not very strong at all. It's just a piece of paper. It's only going to be as strong as the parties who make it. And this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, about this covenant that God has with us. He says that, she says it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
And later, Jesus, who was crucified and would rise again, he would secure a new covenant with you and me, despite us, as a grace to us. Which is why we call it the New Testament. That word New Testament in your Bible, it stands for, it's New Covenant. It's another way of saying New Covenant. You see, this is no uninvested God. He's heavily invested. It's not an impersonal God. This is a God who makes promises, watches over the promises, and keeps the promises. That's different from what, use, what, what Moses was used to. He's used to handmade gods, made of gold or silver or wood or whatever. They look like snakes or cats or dogs or cows or the sun or the moon. These were temperamental gods. These were moody gods. They had to be navigated and managed. They would never really keep their end of the deal. They weren't ones that would make promises and keep promises. They were fickle with their promises. And because they had to be navigated, they came with an endless line of magicians and priests, which we will see soon in our story. Jesus is different in the fact that he navigates the wrath of God against sin for us. He's not moody. He's not, he's not temperamental. And what was rightly due for you and me, Christ himself interacted with so that you and I would have the depth of a much better covenant. So with this introduction made and his attention fully arrested, God states his big plan. And he does it really quick here in a moment. He's going to say, I want my people and I want you to go and get them. Two parts. I want my people back and I want you to go and get them. Verse 7, this is what he says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and we looked at that last week, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, let's pause right there. His plan is to relocate his people from a place of slavery to a place of abundance, right? In, imperfect Moses, and he is imperfect is sent by a perfect God to accomplish this mission. Moses, like Jesus, is sent on mission for the purpose of redemption, right? In fact, redemption and mission are probably the two biggest key themes for the book of Exodus. But I'm going to zoom out and I'm going to say if you were to try to summarize your entire Bible in one word, you're not going to come up with a better word than redemption. Redemption is probably the one single word that will capture the girth of your Bible, right? I mean, it's a story of paradise had, paradise lost, and then God spending the rest of the chapters showing how this paradise is regained for you and for me. So redemption is a key theme, but mission is too, because God is missional. He leaves a place of comfort, enters a place of mess for the good of others at a cost to himself. So we see these twin themes of redemption and mission over and over again in Exodus, but also over and over again in your Bible, we are redeemed into mission, not into a vacuum. We are redeemed into mission. In other words, if you are in Jesus, God is sending you. 
There is no such thing as an unsent Christian. They do not exist. By the way, our community groups here, our comms is what we call them, they are built on this conviction. It's the fabric of how we gather and how we scatter as a church. It's one as a sent church. Now, some of you in here or watching right now, you just want connection. You're just looking for friends. You feel alone. You're looking for other people that you can do life with. And that's why you're in a community group or want to be. And I hope you find it. I really do. That's a big key theme for us. But I want you to understand that that is a sent community made up of people who are sent into their various arenas, right? I'm in a missional community. It's full of people who are in different spheres, different trajectories of life, different skill sets, different capacities, different ideas, different convictions, different everything. We're all individual missionaries sent to individual arenas, right? And yet at the same time, our missional community has a congruent or a singular direction, Right? The, one, the one I am in, it is the Hope Resource Center. It's where we're, we work with moms. Now, we might do a good job at our, at our big mission. We might not do a good job. We might struggle in some seasons and do brilliant in others. But make no mistake, we are hardwired for mission. It's hardwired to work outwardly, to be faced outwardly. Now, for a lot of us in the church, the pandemic has taken an egg whisk to a lot of our missions, Right? I mean, a lot of us were having some good missional rhythms going into the pandemic, and that was just kind of like a master reset. And so a lot of us are trying to regain that missional footing, and that's fine. That's just a piece of it. But we are hardwired to extend the gospel. Otherwise, we're just an inflective care group that we just show up, and we just stare at each other and wait for Sunday to come, or we come and do this thing, whatever this thing is, right? Listen, if you're looking for a care group with no mission, I'm just going to say you're probably not ever going to really be comfortable here. Not for long, anyway. We were built to scatter and proclaim, both as individuals and as a community. And I get it. There's really nothing more frightening than doing something that you you find yourself wildly inadequate to do. It's frightening. It's scary. And this was Moses' predicament. That's what he's struggling with in this passage. And because of this, he starts reasoning with God, just like you and I do. Right? I think we're probably a little better at it than Moses. I'm looking at some of his arguments and I'm thinking, man, he really got caught on his heels. That wasn't really well thought out. But this is what he says. Let's look at verse 11. He starts in real quick. Same passage, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you what you have brought. <laughs> Come on, that was funny. It rolled all the way down. <laughs> he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, this is Moses' argument. God, I'm a nobody. You've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong guy. And let's face it, he was the wrong guy. On paper, very wrong. He's not a diplomat. He's an 80-year-old shepherd, knows nothing about leading a nation, knows nothing about stepping up and flexing in front of a pharaoh, knows nothing about this. I mean, let's just be honest. We're not really all that qualified either. We don't have the stuff it takes to do this. We're not smart enough. We're not cool enough. 
We're not quick enough, perfect enough, behaved enough, consistent enough. We have failures. We have restrictions, inadequacies, a past, doubts, which is why God says here, I will be with you. I will do the real work. I'll be with you. I'll be ahead of you. And I'll do the real work. Listen, when you live a life on mission, I want you to count on bringing your inadequacy to the table and count even more on God being enough. Count on it. Count on coming up short for these moments. And then count on God being ahead of you, preparing a way. I've lost count, lost count over the last 25 years of being in the ministry of how many times I have done a miserable job explaining Jesus to somebody. Right? I'm not clear I'm not compelling. I sound like a moron. I mix up my books of the Bible, and I'm like, why did I say that? That didn't come out of there. I, I just I do a bad job. I just drop it. And I can't. I'm amazed at how often the Holy Spirit will come in those moments and wreck that person, despite my poor job, despite what I brought to the table. This is why Paul says we carry this treasure in plain wrapping so that the dominating power of God has nothing to do with us. It's beautiful, this thing called missional living. This is why God tells the same, Paul, my power is perfected in your weakness. It's not elevated by you being impressive. It's by your weakness. God is not waiting for you to be impressive, just obedient. He's not waiting for you to be polished, just dependent, right? Just dependent. In fact, I think recognizing how finite we are, I don't think that's bad at all. (laughs) I think it's a good start. Paul acknowledged that he wasn't enough for the job. Moses is at this place where he realizes he's not right for the job. But if stopping, if we stop on mission because of this, our realization of how finite we are, that's just pride. That's just an an overemphasized fascination with how restricted we are. That's all that is. It's an infatuation and a focus with self and self-ability or lack thereof, really. So let's go to the next argument. He, he just chimes right back in. It's like he doesn't even hear what God says. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am, has sent you. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to this, to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay. This is interesting because now what he's saying is I have no idea what to say. Not only I'm a nobody and you've got the wrong guy, but I don't even know what I would say. And why would he? He's not an expert in anything, right? I mean, he's been a shepherd for 40 years, so I guess he has that down on lock. But besides that, he's not going to be able to do any of this from a place of experience, and he lacked credibility. And again, I think we can find great company here, can't we? Right? How many times have you said to yourself, I have no idea what to say in this moment? Like, that person's far from God. I'm loved by God. I don't know what to say. I know I'm going to sound like a baboon, whatever comes out of my mouth. I don't know what to bring to this person. Well, it's not very complicated. This is how complicated mission is and missional extension. God is basically telling Moses to announce who God is and, and remind them of his promise. So this is who God is. This is what he promises us. That's all he's supposed to do. 
telling people who God is. Telling people what God does. That's about as complicated as mission gets. You don't need a master's in evangelism to be faithful to God's mission. We just have to carry those things. The reason for the hope that we have. Who is God that we have hope in? What reason do we have hope? What is this story that we call the gospel? And even then, even then we have the Holy Spirit helping us. Giving us words when we need them. I love this passage. Stay where you're at. Jesus in Luke 12, talking to his disciples, says, And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Right? This does not mean that only when you're in front of kings and the mayor or whatever, that that's the moment that the Holy Spirit gives you help. It's just talking about a high-stress moment, one that you're not prepared for, an all-big-stakes moment where you walk in and your, your heart rate's just banging around in your chest because you're nervous, because you're at this place where I, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Here it goes. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And you don't really know what to say, but you're pretty sure it's going to sound stupid, and you know that in two days you'll be kicking yourself for saying this and not saying that. In that moment, the Holy Spirit gives us guidance. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance. Very simply, what has God done for you and how has he changed your life? Why do you hope like you do? And then chapter 4, verse 1. Go ahead and go up to there. There's his next big pushback. Verses 1 through 9. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. That's what I'd say, right? Maybe you? I mean, he wouldn't even get very far. He'd talk about how the bush wasn't burning. I'd be like, oh, please, man, this guy. And I'd move on. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I love that last part. And Moses ran from it, right? Because we all would, don't lie. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's when he would have had to come up with a totally different example for me. I'm not grabbing a snake by anything. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord of God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand in your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Here's this big argument. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? Listen, at this point, we're not talking about Pharaoh yet. I hope you picked up on that. We're talking about the Israelites. He's still trying to win the locker room. We're talking about his own people. Can God really change their heart? That's what he's really asking. You get that. That's what you ask. That's what I ask. You ever look around and see somebody, the way they're tattooed, the way they carry themselves, the way they talk, the way they live. Do you ever ask yourself, can that person ever really change? They look so far from someone that loves Jesus. 
can they really believe? Would that person really repent? Would that person really fall at the feet of Christ? Would that person ever go to a church service? Would that person ever even let me get halfway into a conversation about Jesus? Can God change that heart? I think that sometimes. And that's because our biggest hesitation is, can God even change a person? So what God does in this moment is very thoughtful. He says, no problem, I'll give you a few signs. That'll get it done. I'll give you a few signs, right? And then they'll believe you. Now, we don't have signs like this. You picked up on that, right? If we throw a, a stick on the ground, it stays a stick. I pour water on the ground, it just makes a mess. We don't really have a sign. But we do. But we do. Matthew 12, stay where you're at again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, which is Christ, they're, t- they're talking to Jesus. We wish to see a sign from you. These are people that have already seen a few. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Our sign is an empty tomb. That's our sign. As we speak to a generation about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you need to know that not everyone is going to believe you. Some are going to want proof. And an empty tomb will be good enough for some. It's not going to be good enough for a lot. That shouldn't frustrate you and it shouldn't even shock you, to be honest with you. Because pretty soon we're going to see in this story how the plagues come. And the plagues get increasingly worse and increasingly darker and more devastating to the land of Egypt. And then still, after God flexes and rains hail and starts killing things all around, they still look and go, nah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Look at verse 10. He's going to keep up with his line of spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? We're deaf, we're seeing, we're blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Okay, this is Moses saying I'm just not good with the whole words thing. I'm not good at talking with people. People are hard. And I'm not good with words. You, you start to get the feeling that he's reaching a little bit here. He's repackaging some of his old arguments to build new ones. We don't really know what kind of speaking issue Moses had. It might have been legitimate. It might have been something that was psychological. It could have been an impediment that he had growing up. We don't really know. We don't know if it was legitimate or if it's fake news right here, but we know God's answer is going to continually remain the same through every single argument which is I will be there, I will do all the work, I will be in front of you. That's what we're supposed to be picking up in this. That's the big idea. The big idea for us through these chapters and this moment is that Moses is consumed with his inadequacies. He's consumed with not trusting God. And that's the same big idea for me, same big, big idea for us, because we are a very unimpressive people that are focused on how unimpressive we are, Right? And yet God wants us to look and be fascinated with and trust in the fact that he's ahead of us. And he is the one doing all the work through his spirit. We do not have to set our eyes on our own restrictions, but on how unrestricted he is. 
Because in a day where we have more gods than ancient Egypt, and we do, we tend as a church to only see the limitations around us, the restrictions, the inadequacies, the failures. We forget that the bush needed no fuel. We forget that God needs no help. We forget that he is really good at sending imperfect people to do big work. We ignore that he goes before us, and we don't believe that his power is custom fit for our weakness. Listen, God is not working through your impressive missional work. He's laboring despite your best attempt. He's working through it. He's working despite it. Your arena of mission, whatever that is, where you work, where you play, where you live life, that place that you're sent, has little to do with you besides your dependence on God to do work in your midst. You only need to take a deep breath, trust God, and loose your tongue. That's all you need to do. And no, you're not going to say everything right. You are going to botch it up. You're going to get questions you won't have any answers to, right? You'll get mocked. You'll get ignored. You'll get canceled. These will happen. And then God marches through all of it. His spirit is undaunted. His spirit is not intimidated. His spirit is not confused or frustrated like the wind. He blows, he changes hearts, he turns what was stone into flesh. He brings revival, he brings awakening. When I trusted Jesus with my life, the gospel that I heard as a young man, it was imperfect. It wasn't very compellingly given. When I look back on it, it was theologically not good. The gospel that was preached to me, the guy missed it by a mile, right? I mean, if you just had a Bible in your hand, probably could have seen that. Yet, he was obedient and God did all the work. The Holy Spirit changed my heart. Not because this guy was awesome, but despite the fact that he just did the best that he could. He was obedient. I know classes and books are helpful. Teaching on evangelism and mission, that's really helpful or else we wouldn't do it. But God will rip through a city and bring awakening and bring revival when all we do is just obey. He'll do it. He's done it since time began. And here's one of my favorite parts. And when we fail at this, and we will, wildly, when we swing for the fence and we fail, God shows grace. He doesn't love us more because we've led a lot of people to Jesus. He doesn't love us more because we tell everybody about Jesus. He loves us incredibly because of what Jesus has done for us. He doesn't love you any less if you don't tell anyone about Jesus. That's the beauty of his gospel, right? He shows us grace, but he also gives us another gift. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in heart. Okay, so we see this beautiful moment where Aaron's going to come out. He says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. Okay. 
All that's happening here is Aaron's going to be a, a helper and encourager. I mean, God's building a community here. Now there are two. Now there are two. Aaron's going to be helpful and Moses is going to be helpful. And they're going to do this together. Listen, if you know the story, Moses is going to end up doing the lion's share of the communicating anyway. Right? That's not, that's not a misprint. When you read that and you're like, well, it sounds like Moses is still doing a lot of talking. He is. He is. More than Aaron even. But God adds Aaron to this as a grace. Instead of blasting Moses for giving 19 arguments on why this is all a bad idea, he gives him community. Gives him a form of grace and companionship. Listen, your best mission to Knoxville, Tennessee, and the farthest reaches of the earth are going to be in the confines of community. It will be. It will be. We're, we're called, as I said earlier, we're called to be missionaries individually. We are so much more powerful. We're more than the sum of our parts when we are communal in our mission. Again, as a church, we're resolved in this. I mean, just ask yourself, who's an Aaron to you? Who is an Aaron to you? Who are you an Aaron to? Who are you preaching the gospel to when you see somebody get just all wrapped up in their restrictions and inadequacies? And who is handling you? Who is speaking to you? Who's confronting and ministering to you whenever they see you focused on what you are not instead of who God is? Are you in community? If you are determined to do mission alone, you will hit a low ceiling to a certain extent. When you're in community, again, you're bigger than the sum of your parts. It's a conviction for us. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for us to repent in passages like this as we, as we come to an end to this part of the service. Oh, the big thing is not just silence. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to say, yeah, you're right, Luke. I've got to repent because I don't tell people about Jesus. Silence is not the sin. Silence is a symptom, right? The real sin is behind being silent. The real sin is trusting in our inadequacy more than God's total inadequacy. It's trusting in our lack more than his abundance. That's what's making us silent. That's what's holding our tongue. That's what we need to repent for. It's just the notion of, God, you are not enough. God, you cannot. God, you refuse to. God, you're not good enough. You're not kind enough. You're not for this. You can't change a heart. You can't do anything here. That is what we repent of. Not silence. That's just downhill. It's downhill. And then as we move into this part of the service, I want you to just think about not redemption only, but where are you sent? Not really a place, but a people. Who are you sent to? That would be a better way of asking it. What arenas do you occupy? Right? Or think of it this way. If Jesus were to jump into your schedule and be tied to your hip for the next week, everywhere you go, he goes. Everything you see, he sees. Where do you think you would turn around and see him focused? Where would his attention be drawn? Who would he want to spend a little bit more time with? What would his eyes land on and not want to lift off of? Where would his concerns be? It helps us look at our arenas a little bit differently. That's why I ask a question like that. And listen, there is a gap between your neighbor and a holy God if they are not in Christ. They need to know that Christ is the only way they can come near to a God like this. Right? And listen, if you are outside of Christ, if you are far from Christ is what we'd say today, some churches will they call you an unbeliever or lost, however you want to say it. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. If that is you, you need to know that Jesus is the only stopgap that you have. 
that when God says, remove your shoes because this is not common ground, the only way you're ever going to approach Jesus or God is through the person of Christ. It's not going to be through your affiliations or your behavior or how often you show up to whatever church USA. It's not. 